All right, this is part five of our series where we are going through making the Christian life work. We've talked about grace, we've talked about faith twice, two different aspects, and we've talked about submission. And today we're going to talk about resisting the devil. Uh, last time we had focused on James chapter 4. We're going to start with a certain verse in James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Now the second statement, resist the devil and he will flee from you, assumes that the first has been done. Submit therefore to God. The second statement is a promise from God. If you submit yourself to God and keep yourself there, you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's many people who try to do one or the other. There's some people who try to resist the devil, but they've never submitted to God. Therefore, they're going to end up, you know, like the seven sons of Siva being, you know, in the book of Acts. It's like, well, if you don't submit to God, you don't belong to him. The grace of God is not working in you. The Spirit of God is not dwelling in you to protect you, lead you, guide you, and all these kind of things. And so you have no relationship with God. Therefore, you have no standing to actually do anything against the devil. The devil is not afraid of you. But you have to do the two together. And also, if you submit, if you try to submit to God, but you don't resist the devil, you might begin right, but you're going to fall way off kilter very, very quickly. Now, the Greek word for resist is anthistemi. Here, it has the meaning to, to be in opposition to, set oneself against, to oppose. Now, can we honestly say that this is the posture of our souls to the enemy, the enemy of God, to things that are in opposition to God? Or are we passive? Do we just let things happen? It's a very penetrating question when you really think about it. Is Do I really set myself against that which is against God? Now, we're not talking about flesh and blood, for our warfare is not according to the flesh, right? We're talking about just in your soul. Do you mark those things that are in opposition to God, that are against Him, against His will, His ways? And do you set yourself as like, no, I must stand in opposition to that? Now, Peter also mentions this same commandment to resist to resist the devil. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Peter clarifies how we are to resist, firm in our faith. Now, the Greek word for firm here is stereos. We're to be firm, steadfast, and strong. But in what? In our, in our faith. In our faith is said to be that which has overcome the world in another place. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God, that is a believer who's been born again, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, or our faith. First John 5, 4. That's not talking about a decision you made sometime in the past. That is not your victory in that sense. 
It's like, no. Are you abiding in the faith? Do you stand in faith? Are you standing firm in your faith? Can we honestly say that this describes our faith? Are we firm in our faith when we encounter difficulties or trials or temptations? Now, our need to resist is mentioned in another passage, more well-known, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, where we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming errors of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now you look through that, and you see some of the same things. It says that you must do certain things, though, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And then it goes on and gives the same admonition, to stand firm. And it says, stand firm, therefore, and gives a list of things. Now, what Paul says here is significant. He says that we must do something else in order to be able to resist. He has a a therefore in verse 13. So we need to go back and get the context, because every time you see a therefore... You need to see what it's there for. You go back and you read what was beforehand, because after, therefore, it's a conclusion or a summary statement, right? Well, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Then he reminds us that this is a spiritual warfare and not a fleshly or a worldly one. Paul has commented on the nature of our warfare in another place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, where he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That is, not with fleshly weapons, or carnal weapons, or worldly weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, or the mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, Right? So this battle that we have against the flesh and the devil and the world system is not a physical one. It's very easy to get adversarial against people by not acknowledging that there is a spiritual thing going on behind us. It is a spiritual battle, and a spiritual battle requires spiritual weaponry and armor. Being mindful only of fleshly or worldly influences is not enough to win this battle. Um, Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 2. In verse 20, down to chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value 
against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Pretty much what Paul talks about is the Colossians had fallen into this bad teaching or bad practice of thinking that if you do not handle, do not taste, do not touch certain things, therefore you would somehow be spiritual. Well, no, that's that's not it. That's not it. And I can illustrate this with a simple point. If a man is walking down the road and he picks up a, let's say he finds laying beside the road, he sees something, he's like, what is that? Picks it up and turns out to be a pornographic magazine. Does the act that he touches it defile him spiritually? No. It's if he opens it and begins to indulge in it. That's what defiles him. And this is what Christ was commenting on when he said, it's not that which goes into a man which defiles him, but that which comes out of him, out of the heart, right? And so these things, just not touching something, not tasting something, and things like that, it's of no value against fleshly indulgence, Paul says. And we can make it kind of tie it into this. Discipline is not holiness. It's not. Deny the flesh all you want to in some area. But if you are just doing that, you will still fail in this battle. There is something that you are to do that is spiritual. See, discipline is bringing your body under, which is good. And in another place, we, we're going to talk about that, and if we haven't already. Discipline is something a Christian must learn. Discipline and disciple kind of come from the same root, um, discipline, or, you know, to the bring under the teachings or administration or administration of another kind of idea, right? But holiness is to be set apart. And so it's this idea of, if I just don't touch these things, don't do these other things, then somehow that makes me right with God. Well, no. There must be life. It's the same concept of why you can't just stop sinning and be right with God. You have to be reconciled to God. And so discipline is not holiness. Discipline is good and in a certain way necessary for the Christian life, but it does not result in a Christian life. It may be a description of somebody who is a Christian, that they are growing in discipline, but it is not how to become a Christian. It is very important. So deny the flesh all you want to in some area. You know, you're like, well, I overeat a lot, so I'll stop eating as much. Well, no, if that's the problem, then just... It's like you're trying to put the car before the horse. It's like, oh, sin's the problem. Okay, stop sinning. There's lots of people who understand how, how big of a struggle that is because you need to get to the root. Don't just deal with the surface issues. There's something spiritual that you are to do, and it is to stand firm in your faith. Consider this about the pieces of armor mentioned by Paul. Um, a lot of times people read lists like this and be like, okay, well, I need this, I need that, and I need that. And it's, it's like whenever you read through the fruits of the Spirit, right? And you're like, oh, okay, it says love, joy, peace, temperance, meekness, faith. And those kind of you're like, all right, I need to be more loving. I need to be... Well, no, 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 no. That's not what it's there for. It says these are the fruit of the Spirit. If you want more of these things, you need the Spirit of God. And you say, well, I'm, I don't, I mean, I'm bored again, but I don't, these things are not, you know, happening in my life. Well, then how do we grow and be filled with the Spirit of God? What well, says the Spirit of God glorifies Jesus Christ. And it says he only speaks of him. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, seek Jesus Christ. Seek to focus on Jesus Christ, to glorify Jesus Christ. And then you will be filled with the Spirit. And then you will have the fruits of the Spirit. The same word for fruits, Greek, is karpos, meaning results. The fruits of something. 
You have to get down to the actual thing. This is why it says in the New Testament that the fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. And so let's consider the armor of God. We're told uh, in this passage, it says, you are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not your might. Don't be strong yourself. No, no, no. Paul says he gloried in his weakness, for then the, power, the strength and the power of God is made manifest in his life. 2 Corinthians 12. But you are to put on this armor. Well, in Romans 13, 14, you are told to put on Christ. Our battle is against spiritual powers behind the things of this world. Well, Christ is above all these things. Ephesians 1, 21. 1 Peter 3, 22. Colossians 2, 15. We're told to gird our loins with truth. Well, he is truth. John 14, 6. John 18, 37. We're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, he is our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30. We're told to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, the gospel is about him, and he is the prince of peace. We're told to take the shield of faith. Well, your faith is in Christ and in his working. Talking about your helmet of salvation. He is your salvation. We're told about the sword of the Spirit and the word of God. Well, he is the word of God, John 1, 1. And the spirit is his spirit, the spirit of Christ, Romans chapter 8. Every aspect of the armor points back to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So even in this, we come back to the simplicity of Christ. But we're commanded to resist firm in our faith. So let's look at an an example of this. In Matthew chapter 4, we see an example of Christ enduring temptation, and he is doing this as a man. His entire ministry, he was living as a man who, yes, was filled with the Spirit of God, but he was showing us the model of a man who was wholly given to God. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, uh, starting at the beginning, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you were the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now let's look at some things about this passage. Satan came when Jesus was weak. He had been fasting. Don't expect the enemy wanted to do a fair fight. He's going to come when you're discouraged, when you're distracted, and when you're deceived. I mean, these are all sorts of things. He's going to come when you're tired. He's going to come when you're not expecting it. This is not a fair fight in that sense. This is not, this isn't a gentleman's war, if you want to think of it that way. Satan is going to come whenever he believes he can get you. 
And whenever you're not, you're not focused, when you're not truly just, you're, you know, you're focused, you're loving Christ and walking, right? He was tempted after he had been encouraged. This is right after Christ's bath, um, baptism. The Father had literally just bore witness to him at his baptism, where John the Baptist baptized Jesus after he asked him. And then the, the Holy Spirit you know, descended in the form of a dove and lighted upon him, and the heavens opened, and there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? This is right after that. And oftentimes in our life, whenever we've been encouraged, whenever we're, we've got some victory over the Lord, why we let our guard down? And it's very easy for us to just get sideswiped right then, because we let our guard down. We're not being vigilant. See that he was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's exactly what we're tempted with. And pretty much every temptation that we will ever encounter will fall into those three categories. Satan tried to use Scripture to persuade Jesus. And so don't think that Satan is afraid of Scripture. He's not. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards, and in your mind, in the thought battle, and these kind of things, the enemy will try to twist things, per pervert things, and all sorts of things. Which is why, just like what we'll say next, each time Jesus knew a scripture to counteract what Satan was, was tempting. Every time Satan tried to twist scripture, Jesus knew scripture well enough to counteract and say, no, you're taking that, that wrong. Also, he not only knew the scripture, he stood on them. He would not budge from his commitment to God the Father. I remember when I was young in the Lord, I would read these like choice bookshelves and from the local Kroger, because I didn't know any better. They're usually terrible. And there was this one book on spiritual warfare. It says all you need to do is quote scripture and the enemy will flee. Well, that's not true. The enemy is not afraid to walk into a church. The enemy is not afraid to become directly encountering with the pastor of a church or anything like that. He's not afraid of hearing the Word of God. I mean, the devils and things like that are just fallen angels that stood in the presence of God. They're not going to be afraid of Christians who know Scripture. It's not enough. When you stand on Scripture, that's whenever there actually becomes a reason. Why? Because then the grace of God and the Spirit of God working in you to uphold you, to protect you, knowing things, saying them out loud is not enough. Just quoting Scripture and knowing them does nothing. You must do something with them. Like it says in the Hebrews, it says, the word doesn't profit if it's not mixed with faith. Now, this is another interesting, interesting thing. It ended with the devil fleeing. Just like what it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And here, the devil left him. But also notice the devil could not force Jesus to sin. He had to persuade him. Now, most of us are not like this. Most of us are like Eve when we are tempted. So let's go and read there in Genesis chapter 3. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty. The serpent is, is explained as, it is Satan. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, I believe verse 9 makes it very clear. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman that said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now what are some things that we can see from this passage? And people try to give Eve, they don't give her credit. People say, oh, she never should have started talking to him to begin with. Well, one, until this point, there was no sin. Nothing. There was no manifestation of sin in existence outside of the fall of Lucifer, depending on when theologians were to put it, whether it was before this, we you know, how far in front of this. We don't know. We only know what is written. But from Eve's perspective, she had never encountered anything that was contrary to God's will. Never. She, I mean, talking animals and these sorts of things, doesn't, we don't have any scriptural reason to believe that this was uncommon. We don't have any scriptural reason to think that she didn't handle it the right way. There's literally nothing. We just know that this was Satan, you know, in a deception. But here's something to consider. When Eve is initially prodded by the serpent, she responds correctly. She repeats the words of God. And he said, you know, is, did God say this? She's like, well, no, we can eat from all the fruit from the trees of the garden, but not from this one tree in the middle of the garden. And so when the serpent responds by telling her something different, she fails to stand on the words of God. And so this is where she failed. She didn't stand on the words of God. She didn't stand firm in her faith on what God had said. And I want you to consider, she could have even gone to God and asked him about it. I want you to think about that. It said that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. There was fellowship. There was nothing between them and God yet. If she encountered something she did not know, something that seemed to contradict, she could have gone to God and asked him about it. Next, she was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, she saw it. She saw that it was good to be good for food. She saw that it was pleasing to the eyes, and that it was one desires to make one wise. That's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when she and Adam sinned, this is the end of it. This is the difference. They ended up fleeing from God. And in verse 8, it says they hid themselves from God. But notice the same thing. The devil could not force them to sin. He had to persuade them. And that's something that you need to realize. If you have believed the gospel, Satan can't force you to sin. He must persuade you. This is why it's temptation. It is the enemy trying to lure you to do something that you must do yourself. You must turn from God and do something contrary to his will. Now, many of us, like Eve, begin to resist when we are tempted. But we do not continue to stand firm in our faith until we have overcome. Now, let's consider some practical. We must be submitted to God. If you haven't listened to the last part in the series, Submission, go and listen to it. You cannot do anything good. The grace of God will not be working in you. If you were, not, if you were just resisting God, you can't resist the God and then try to resist the devil. No, because the very fact that you're resisting God on something means that you're wholeheartedly hand in hand with what the enemy is trying to do. You must be submitted to God. If there's anything in your life that God is convicting, that God is trying to you know, put his finger on, and he's like, hey, deal with this, deal with this, deal with this, and you're like, nope, nope, don't hear you. All you're doing is harden your heart to God. 
Next, your strength comes from Christ. You're told to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. It's not about your strength. You're not strong in spiritual things. That's why you needed to be saved. Continue in that attitude before God. Like, no, He is the Savior. It is His life working in you. When you're tempted, resist and continue to resist. You have a promise. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Continue to resist, knowing that God's word is true. And that leads to the last one. Stand firm in your faith. You need to have this attitude of God's word is true. And I will die on this hill. No matter what the situation and circumstance, I'm going to die on this hill. If I'm going to be made a fool of, it's going to be because I believed God. Now, I always have to, I always try to throw this in there. Make sure that you're believing the scripture in context. You can't just pluck things out of context and say, well, this is what I'm going to apply it to. I've heard of all sorts of ridiculous things. People believe in that they can walk around people and you know, make them their spouse, you know, just like Joshua walked around the walls of Jericho seven times and it was, you know, it fell down. I mean, ridiculous things that have no basis in the scriptures. You need to know the scriptures enough to know when things are in context or not. And it's simple. You don't need a theological degree. But when you know that you're reading the scriptures in context, stand firm in what they say. Now, some promises that you need to take. Remember, we're talking about promises. Believe the promises of God. Reckon them to be true. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It is a big thing in your Christian life when you actually begin to believe the fact that God has said you can have victory. You don't need to be subject to sin. If you are a believer, you don't need to. It is a big change in the way in which you deal with, the, with sin in your life. God says that you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not because you're strong, but because he's strong. That's why you submit to God first. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God, or whatever stands born of God, right? It's not talking about an event. You are born of God or you are not. People say, well, you know, I was born again. Well, I don't care what you were in the past. Tell me what you are. Present tense. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. That's true. It's God's word. Learn it. Begin to apply it. Claim the promises of God. Stand on them. Apply them in your decisions and in temptations. Do not be lured away by the enemy to move in opposition to God's word. Don't hesitate when you know God's word. Submit to it. Do it, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. 
That's brotherjohn at remnantbiblefellowship.com.